Let's pray. Father, this is your flock. And it is a great privilege to be here as your son and a friend of Tyler. To be able to say, thus says God, this is your word. I pray that what we do in the next few minutes truly is worship. I pray that it is neither entertainment nor a download of information. I pray it isn't boring because you're not. I pray it is a meeting between us and the Lord God of heaven and earth. I pray that for myself first. And I pray it for these men and women and children who are loved by you, by Tyler, and who are here because they love you. Would you be here? May this truly be worship where we are pleased with you and you are pleased with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have any of you ever had an argument with your family on Sunday? Don't you hate that? Was it before or after the service? Because I know it was one or the other, if not both. This happened to a man I know. He led in worship. Though his wife had elected to stay home and not attend. Still, he was content even without her. And he really enjoyed the worship, the people he was with, and the occasion. And when it was done, he went home to bless his wife. That was what was his intention. He had just had a delightful time with God. He walked in the door, and from the moment he got in, he knew something was wrong. Her arms were folded across her chest, but immediately when he walked in, she put her hands on her hips. As he came in and took a breath to speak, she spoke first. Her hands that were on her hips now were pointing at him. You think you're so much better than me, don't you? He said nothing. Her hand continued to point at him like it was a revolver that she had drawn from her hip and he, she might be ready to shoot. You were a fool the way you acted today in worship. Well, he thought, I guess I was a bit enthusiastic. And then she fired again. All the people were mocking you behind your back. Wow. Has that happened to you? Again, on Sunday. Sundays are the worst for such things. What did you do? When that happened. That's the question I want you to be thinking about. As we turn in a few minutes to Psalm 131. But I want to stick with this story for just a moment. The story behind the psalm. Because you know this man. This man that I'm talking about. Is King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 6. We read this story. David and Michal. It was the day of Israel's rejoicing when on the second attempt, there was a first, it didn't work out so good. 
On the second attempt, the altar or the, uh, the ark of God was being brought into the temple. And on that day, the day of all days that David had waited for, we could say all his life to that point, Michal despised him. I want to read you just that verse, not the whole story. 2 Samuel six sixteen, And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Why? Well, her dad, Saul, was tall. And Saul was a bit pompous. But in that, to her, he was the definition of kingly. Saul was probably a Presbyterian. There's archaeological evidence that shows he probably was Presbyterian. He probably wore dark suits. David was, well, you know, Pentecostal. And he was short. And he didn't act very kingly. Not in her opinion. And so she despised him. Of course, being despised was not new to David, was it? His brothers despised him when Goliath was tormenting the armies of Israel. The the Philistine, a giant. He was threatening and he was mocking. And then David, the little guy, volunteered to challenge Goliath, the big guy, to single combat. And not only did his brothers despise him when he showed up and asked questions, but then... Yeah, then Goliath despised him, mocked him. That was just before Goliath died. So David, in these situations, needed a way to soothe and quiet his own soul. Have you ever felt that? When someone very close to you, someone you really care about, is coming at you. How did David do that? We cannot be completely sure exactly what he did. But we do know that he fought the giant with these words. He declared, my trust is in Yahweh. That was on David's lips as he headed toward his death. Right? That's what everybody thought. That's a good start. I trust in Yahweh. Your words hurt They threaten my very existence in a real sense. Words are not weak things. They can define us. But David looked to and listened to God. We also know that he wrote a bunch of psalms when he was discouraged. Well, the psalms themselves start out discouraged. They end up looking at God. Now, that's a great response. Specifically, history suggests, and what I'm about to tell you isn't in the Bible, it's a, we think so, that Psalm 131, the one that we're going to look at today, is a psalm that David wrote immediately after this confrontation with McCall. After his wife kicked him in the shins verbally, he didn't stay and have a fight. He didn't stay and argue with her till she gave in. 
that's what I can do. He wrote a psalm, wrote a song. And he wrote it, I'm going to say, as a means of still quieting his own soul. Would you turn with me to Psalm 131? One of the shortest psalms in the Bible. Not quite the shortest, but one of. Psalm 131, almost in the middle of your Bible. I don't know what translation you have. You don't have this one. This is mine. But follow along. I want you to see it in your Bible and take notes there if it seems appropriate as we go through it. It reads like this. O Yahweh, not proud my heart. Oh, and not haughty my eyes. Not concerned with things too great and wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child on its mother's lap. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, people of God. Hope in Yahweh. Right now. And forever. Father, again, I pray that you help us. That your word would be even more deeply planted in me and in us. And you, as we leave here, would be even more delight. Now, I've been shaped by Psalm 131. Not enough. If you get to know me, not enough. But I've been shaped by it for more than 25 years. In fact, I don't think there's any other text in Scripture which I turn to more often. But God is still working with me on this. Daily. And I hope that while I'm preaching this, that it would be your prayer that you would meet God in this psalm. And it's my desire that this would be for you a touchstone for the very way that you deal with people and God and know what's true and not true. Christians, this is your call to a battle for hope. Of joy against fear, anxiety against, well, every indication that the world wants to give to you. Every social media thread, which intends to make us anxious. The Christian life is not hope and joy because Christians are promised an easy life. It's hope and joy because we know who is real and who is delightful. Now, if you're here as a not yet Christian, and I hope some of you are here as a not yet Christian, that you want something from God, uh, perhaps this is news for you, what I'm about to say. That is, perhaps you've considered hope a silly slogan that Christians toss around like a bad greeting card. A religious fantasy. I want to tell you, it is not. Hope is substantive, and it is real because hope is a person. Oh, Yahweh, as we'll see, is David's turn. The turn is to a person. And God wants to give you himself in this fight for joy, this fight for hope. God offers you hope today, and that is the core of the gospel. So, today, God is calling us to hope in a fourfold exercise. So first, when Rick feels anxious, 
If I am acting with godly wisdom, which I do not always, but which is my intention, my first turn is O Yahweh. Those are not throwaway words at the beginning of the psalm, like how else do I start the psalm? When I'm anxious, my turn is what? To the thing that makes me anxious. I circle the drain. I repeat the words of that person who's so important to me that they said against me. I try to think of the best possible comeback. I try to figure out what I did to irritate them. I try to figure out what I could do to bring them back to the wisdom that I'm really great. Have you ever done that? Or worse, a week later you realize what you should have said and then you keep obsessing. Why couldn't I have thought about that then? When we're anxious, we are in danger of acting out of our fear when we most need to turn to God. We turn to distraction when these things happen. A business or hobbies. Affirmation. Find somebody in social media that will give us a good word. Uh, you got to sort through a bunch of bad words to get there, don't you? But we want friends that will agree with us, so we defriend anybody that isn't going to tell us what we want to hear. Revenge. Oh, that's a good turn, isn't it? Focus on how we can get even. Start a rant blog against the person that hurt us. Pornography or drugs, even legal ones, so we can forget. Not David. Not you and I when we're acting in accord with reality and sanity. Not insanity and sanity. No, our turn, David's turn, is oh Yahweh. If it is reflexive for David to do so, it is because of much practice. Do you have practice in turning to God instead of social media? Do you have practice in turning to God instead of revenge? Do you have practice in turning to God instead of trying to figure out the right words that you should have used? Or even obsessing on the fact that you don't know them? I promise you, you'll have an opportunity to practice today and probably before you leave the building. Second. The first movement is toward Yahweh. What's next? When I, Rick, feel anxious, I, we, must turn away from self-focus. So why did McCall despise David? I suggest an answer, I already did, that he wasn't like her dad. A lot of times that happens in our marriages, in our friendships, you're not like the person I think you should be. You're not like the standard I have in my head. And the standard is never Jesus. But why David was despised by McCall? Why you may be despised by your friends? Is less important than this reality... The people around you that are closest to you and mean most to you will not value you for what is best in you. And what's best in you? God put his name on you. You are God's. In fact, they might not even value the good gifts that God has built into you. 
wired into you. They might not even value you when you're actually doing the things that honor God. They may despise you at the wrong time. You may be right that they're wrong. (laughs) By the way, if you really believe that, that, that would be a little bit freeing. Most times when we're ranting against people, it's because we're not quite sure they're wrong. And the only way we can be sure they're wrong is if they change their mind. Because you don't trust God's opinion of you. Or if there's 20 people that think, think that you're pretty cool, one can undermine you that doesn't agree with them. Isn't that strange? What does anxiety look like when it happens to us? Well, that's different for each of us. We're all tailors of how we respond to our anxiety. I suggested a few ways. Self-pity, revenge, dreaming, daydreaming, drugs, (laughs) habits. But I want you to see from David that fight or flight, so flight, drugs, fight, start a rant blog, defriend. Those aren't the only two options, fight or flight. There's a whole nother biblical way. Another choice, according to David, is genuine humility. My turn to God, O Yahweh, is necessarily a turn against making this about me, making this about Rick. How do I see that? Well, the next part of the verse. David begins, O Yahweh, not proud my heart. Not haughty my eyes. Not concerned with things too great and too wonderful for me. What does that that look like? David is neither self-abusive. Hey, it's not my fault. Or, I failed you again. Or, what's wrong with me? You don't hear that from David because that, while it may sound humble, is actually Full of pride. Being down on yourself is full of pride. It's not as obvious as the reversed, where you're building yourself up. David also doesn't need to prove he's right. David doesn't say, you're always comparing me to your dad. I mean, that would have been a pretty good rejoinder, wouldn't you think? Or, God made me king and took out your dad. Don't forget that. Or God approves of me, so what's wrong with you? I mean, God and I agree, so get in board. Have you said things like that? If you haven't, you've at least thought them. David's move to God is away from self-focus. And like the turn to God, the turn away from self-focus needs practice. Can you practice this? Can you say, okay, I know that today someone is going to hurt me by what they do or do not do, by what they say or do not say. Am I ready to turn to God and away from making it about me? Am I ready? That's mental practice before you get there. Now, that's not enough, as we're going to see. That anybody could do, Christian or non-Christian. But it's start. By the way, when David says, I don't concern myself with things too great and wonderful for me, 
What do you think he's talking about? I mean, David's a king. What is too great or wonderful for a king? Kings can start wars and end wars. Kings can, can levy taxes or take off taxes. In fact, kings are allowed to kill people or allow them to live. I mean, what is too great and wonderful for a king? There is only one thing that David as a king didn't have, doesn't have control over. What you think. I mean, the king could even put you to death for what he thinks you think. But he doesn't control what you think. One thing is too great or wonderful for David. Now, the text doesn't say what that is. I'm just giving you Shank's reasoning. It may or may not be right. You assess. But it seems to me the only thing David doesn't control is what other people think. And if he's writing this right after his wife said that, I just wonder if that isn't on David's mind. I know it should be on mine. I don't control what other people think. Therefore, I turn away from myself. I don't have to try. So, so far, turn to God, turn away from focus on herself. Now, like I said, to this end, um, th- that could be anybody. Because, oh, Yahweh doesn't really have content. You know, oh, God. It doesn't have content. Um, Non-Christians could even think in terms of turn to religion away from self. But now, now we're going to get step three, and that is decisive. When I feel anxious, I am responsible to calm my own soul. Many, most of us expect that David should have prayed like this. Oh, Yahweh, calm down my soul. Give me rest in the middle of the mess. I've prayed that. In fact, there's prayers in the Bible that are like that. Those aren't wrong prayers. But the mature man or woman of God signs up with David for this prayer. I have stilled, I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child. Like a weaned child on its mother's lap. Our kids are grown up. In fact, my son is a relief worker um, in uh, Burma. He's with the Free Burma Rangers. And uh, he and his wife are back here now. They just got here this week on Monday, along with our newest grandchild, uh, Eva. And Evangeline, gospel. And they've been stuck, if stuck it is, in the Philippines, not in Burma, for two years because of COVID. Longer story. Ask me afterwards. And Eva has come back, and she is 18 months now. Um, She's weaned. Uh, So sometimes, on a good day, she'll even sit in Grandpa's lap. And she can sit in Mom's lap. Now, when our kids were even younger, my kids, I remember Elspeth and Jonathan, when they were younger, they would demand to be fed by Mom. That's disconcerting when you're out in public. I mean, they could almost rip mom's clothes off to get to the food source. And there is a difference when your kids just want to be with you. At age 40, I think my son is learning that. He just likes to hang out with me. We're not, he doesn't have to contest anything. He's like, be with me. 
We went out for coffee for the first time in many years this week. Isn't it good when your kids just want you and they don't want anything from you? And a weaned child is learning this for the first time. I just want to be with mom and put my head on her chest and listen to her heartbeat. Oh, they may not say all those words. They may not even be quite talking yet. But boy, when they can do that and they just want to be with you as a parent, wonderful. And David is saying, I'm learning that. Now, when his shins are kicked by what his wife said about him, You're a fool in front of all those you think you're leading in worship, in front of all those who call you king. You acted the fool, and they're talking about you behind your back. That would make most of us anxious. And he said, God, I turn to you and away from myself, and I just want to be with you. Can we do that? When the world and our closest friends make us anxious, Why does this matter? Because this is to be like Jesus. This is to be conformed to the image of God. Jesus had been across the lake and he did that miracle where he fed 5,000 people with a lunch. Um, After feeding them, he slipped out. The disciples went across the sea in a boat initially. Jesus stayed and prayed and wouldn't let them make him king. They wanted to make him king. If you make bread, hey, be our king. He said no and hid. Comes out in the middle of the night, walks across the lake, stills the storm. They show up on the other side. And the people are confused because they saw that the boat was gone and yet they knew Jesus had not gone with them. He didn't explain, but they ran around the lake and they caught out with him and they almost seized him. And they said, make us another miraculous meal. We really like this bread thing. And Jesus said, I'm really not interested. Oh, but don't you want to be like Moses? Now, catch this. Moses fed us bread in the wilderness, parenthesis, every day. And you're telling us you're this great rabbi. Don't you want to be like Moses? See what they're doing? Flattering him. And Jesus wouldn't buy it. He said, the bread of God is this. To do the works of him who sent me. What are those works, they say? To believe in the one that he has sent. It's him. He had every opportunity to respond to that anxiety. Are you as good as Moses? Later, actually earlier, John 2. People are beginning to see that he does miracles. They saw them when he went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it said, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. And then the killer phrase. He did not need man's testimony about a man for he knew what was in a man. In other words, when he did all these miracles, he didn't do them to get them praising him and saying, you're just great. He did the miracles to show that he is here representing him and that he has words of life that they need. He needed nothing from them. That's the, that is what makes God, God. His desires are greater than yours, but he has no needs. 
Did you ever have a friend that was really needy? All they wanted was what they could get from you and they feigned friendship. Or even if it was a real friendship, they're just always needy. Needy people are dangerous to be around. Or reverse, did you ever have a friend who really had no desires? They're just kind of self-contained and you almost always have to chase them. They're just no desires. God is perfect in this. His desire for you and to be close to you is greater than you could ever imagine, even comparing it with your love for your children, for example. But his need for you is zero. Now, we tend to equate need with desire as if they're the same thing. They are not. In fact, that's the secret in this text. I do not doubt. In fact, I am sure that David desired Michal's affirmation. And it's good too. It's good to desire the affirmation of the people that are close to us. But to the extent that you need it, you have empowered them to sin. Did you know God can even judge the world? And he will. And send people to hell who've chosen against him. I won't say that doesn't grieve him. In fact, in Isaiah 26, it says, when I do judgment, it is my alien work and my strange work. And yet, he will do it. And he will do it with a kind of right joyfulness as it breaks his heart. Because he desires us, but he doesn't need us. Can we learn that in our relationship with people? If we still inquire our soul before God, we can delight in him. And that frees us to desire closeness to others, but not to be tortured by it and misled by it. Jesus calmed his own soul by God's word and God's spirit when he was tempted. He did so, or so did his servant David. And so should you and I. This too is a point of practice. You think this through ahead. I do desire God. You connect to that sense. I would love to put my head on his chest and listen to his heartbeat. And demand nothing from him at the moment. I desire that. And as we begin to think about that, like David did as he wrote the Psalms, writing the Psalms is practice to know what is true. Give me hope. Help me calm down my soul. Those are good prayers to God. Do pray those. Keep praying those. But as you mature, say with David and Jesus, I've stilled and quieted my soul so I can delight in God. Because when I calm my soul, I can enjoy him. So turn to God, turn away from self, calm your soul. And then we experience that second part of the verse. I've stilled and quieted my soul so I can sit in his lap. Do we want God? I think that's the question that this psalm is asking us. To really bring us face to face. With that, I mean, yes, we want to go to heaven. Yes, we are a Christian, not something else. We have chosen this philosophy, this book. Uh, That's good. That's good, but that far, it's only religion. Do you want God? That's the question that this psalm is asking us. Because if we want God, we can be grieved when these kinds of situations happen. Nobody likes being mocked on Facebook. 
By the way, you could just get off social media. (laughs) Nobody likes when a friend doesn't approve of them. I'm not asking you to say that's okay. And you will be misunderstood at the greatest strength. But when that happens, if we've learned that God is our greatest desire and that we can genuinely delight in him, that's actual Christianity or that is actual people of God kind of work that we're being called to. And here's what happens. God gives us hope when we learn that. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, maybe you already have, but this is the gospel. If you are not yet a Christian or perhaps realize that you've only been religious and you want something more, I'm going to tell you this delight in God is the gospel. It is not enough to want to get out of hell. Oh, it's a good thing. That's a good first step. It may drive people to God. Good. It's not enough to be in a foxhole, whatever your foxhole is, and want God to save you from it. Oh, that's good. That leads not a few to God and may it continue. It's not enough to believe that God is true and the Bible is true. You know, you just kind of bless it and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. That's not enough. True faith is a delight in God and a desire for him. Heaven isn't just being in a place where there's no pain. Heaven is being in the presence of God for eternity where there is no pain. And where you get to be a gardener with him and for him. But it's also today standing on the front lines with God. Because you delight to be with Jesus and about his work. And so this is the gospel. Sure, it's surrendering to Jesus because his death and resurrection save us from our sins. But it's surrendering to a person to Jesus, to know him, to be known by him, and to delight in him instead of everything else the world wants to kill you with. And so who hasn't asked the question, how do I find hope in this hopeless world? It's a universal and legitimate desire, even a need. Here's what David says. O people of God, hope in God now. Now, that is not at the beginning of the psalm. David could not have instructed us to begin by hoping in God until he told us the content. It's a journey. It is a turning to God, away from myself, and maturing into stilling and quieting my soul so I can enjoy him in the middle of the mess. The older you get, that moves from taking weeks or years to moments or days to finally being able to do that in milliseconds, like in the middle of the fight with my wife. I've been married 45 years. Lynn still doesn't always realize how wonderful I am, and sometimes we fight. How I'm always right also, and she hasn't learned that. She should be here to shake her head. But I'm being serious also. That's the feelings that come up inside us, aren't they? And in that, can I learn in a millisecond to say it doesn't matter if she's right or wrong? Because I want God. And I love her enough to satisfy myself in God so I'm free to be useful to her even in disagreement. To love God and find hope in him makes me actually useful to people around me. So what are we learning? Turn to God 
humble myself before God, still and quiet my own heart, quicker rather than later as I learn and grow, and then enjoy God for who he is. O Israel, hope in God. Hope is discovered. My boss, John Piper, calls this Christian hedonism. Maybe Tyler has told you about some of the ways in which Bethlehem tries to help us hear that this is the message of the Bible. The guy who I learned it from first, besides Paul and Jesus and the prophets, was Augustine. This isn't a new idea. And it's not an abstract idea. God made the world and put you in it so you could delight in him fully. Something rocks and squirrels and angels can't do as fully as he's inviting you to. Isn't that amazing? Because you're in his image. You are being asked by Jesus right now to give up finding yourself, finding hope, finding space, finding freedom. By making space for yourself in the world. But instead, by making God your delight. That you would even fight the tendency. The tendency that Rick has to make it about me. Let me add just one more bit. If you do this, you and I can learn to enjoy the people around us more. Not just non-Christians. I mean, let's face it, non-Christians are easy to love if you're a Christian because you know they don't have the advantage you do and you want them to know Jesus. And if they are sinners, well, you, you get it. Of course they're sinners because, well, they don't know Jesus. And so we can tolerate a lot from those who are self-identified and actually are not yet Christians. And if you're here today, may it be the case that you've met some Christians who treat you with gentleness and respect and love you. We don't always do that well, but as I talk to Christians, pretty much they're working on that. They got that. You know what Christians really hate as Christians? Other Christians. I know I'm a little bit over time. I just want to tell a quick story. That's my excuse. Um, I came to church Sunday morning, went back to the sound booth, not this one, my church, Went back to the sound booth, and one of my elders who was running the sound booth and ran the, the audio team said, I've had it, that's it, I'm done. I said, what? He said, I'm not doing sound anymore. Because he was the only guy there, the other sound people hadn't come, and the worship team is harassing him because the sound isn't right. I get it. And then he said, I get this at home, I get this at work, but not at church. I draw the line. Because at church, people are supposed to be good to me. We're supposed to be good to each other. We know Jesus. Bad news. Only sinners are allowed in church. And the one who comes to church with their wish dream for what church could or should be is a destroyer of church. No, the mercy that God gave us for those not yet Christians from whom we don't expect much We should be giving to each other and especially the people that are closest to us, our kids, our parents, our spouse, and the other friends in church who will fail you just at the moment you need support like McCall did for David.
If our hope is in God, we do not depend on being understood, loved as we should be, valued, cared for. And nor do we demand the church be something it never was supposed to be, Savior. Oh, we are the body of Christ, and we should, we should act like Jesus. But we're not in heaven yet. And what will make the church heaven is when we treat each other like God has treated you. And if by the Spirit, armed with Psalm 131, we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and conquer that desire to make everybody love and adore us as we should be loved and adored, as we'd like to become accustomed, then we will be free to delight in God. O Yahweh, not proud my heart, not haughty my eyes, not concerned with things too great and wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my heart, like a weaned child on its mother's lap, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O people of God, hope in God now and forevermore.